today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Give us ears to hear your truth, and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw close to you. May we thirst for the water that your love brings us. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. It's more than just a change of character. There are people that have gone into prison, serve jail time because of some things that they've done in life, and they come out of prison, come out of jail, and they are changed. They're no longer that, that, that whatever it might be. They, they have changed, but are they truly converted? Not in a biblical sense. True Christian conversion is to be totally transformed. We see that throughout the scripture, where again, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What Paul tells us in the book of Romans, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing. Today, Pastor David is teaching about the word convert. He says the closest Christian definition is to change something into a different form or to transform. It's more than a change of character. True Christian conversion is a total transformation. You put away your old life and old ways. You do your best to become like Jesus. It isn't always easy. The old saying, old habits die hard, is very true. We are comfortable in our old ways, but those ways had nothing to do with Jesus, so we need to put them away for something so much better. And here's Pastor David in the book of Acts chapter 9 as he begins his message, The Conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Convert. You've heard that word before, no doubt, convert. A convert is a noun. That's someone who has been converted. That's the way I remember it. But what does it mean, or what does the word convert mean? I actually looked it up uh, online. I could have gone to a dictionary. We have a few uh, at our house, but uh, I was on my computer anyway. So I looked it up online, and you know if it's online, it's got to be true, right? (laughs) So under uh, dictionary.com, actually, which I I, I think we can trust pretty good, I looked up the word convert, and here's some definitions, not all of them because they actually had quite a few, but some that I want you to pay attention to, five of them in particular. Convert, a verb. First of all, to change something into a different form or property, to transmute or to transform. The second one, to cause to adopt a different religion, political doctrine, opinion, etc. Number three, to turn to another or a particular use or purpose, to divert from the original or intended use. Number four, to modify something so as to serve a different function. And then number five, to change in character and cause to turn from an evil life 
to a righteous one. All of those were part of dictionary.com. Now, as we look at all of these definitions, which one do you feel would be the closest biblical definition? Let me give them to you real quick and just think about this in your own mind. Which one do you feel is the most biblical definition? Number one, to change into a different form or property, to transform. Second, to cause to adopt a different religion. Number three, to turn to another or a particular use or purpose. Number four, to modify, to serve a different function. Or number five, to change in character, cause to turn from an evil life to a righteous one. I'm not going to take a, a, a vote this morning, although of these five, have you figured or have you thought through it? I believe that biblically, number one is the one that is most biblically sound. Now, truly, conversion uh, uses many of these others, but in a fuller sense, I believe it's, uh, it's much more than a religion change. There's a lot of people that change religion, but they're never truly converted. Uh, it's more than even changing a direction, going one way and then turning around and going another. We speak of that as repentance, uh, but there's a lot of people in life that change directions in life, not necessarily being converted. It's more than just a change of character. There are people that have gone into prison, served jail time because of some things that they've done in life, and they come out of prison, come out of jail, and they are changed. They're no longer that, that, that whatever it might be. They, they have changed, but are they truly converted? Not in a biblical sense. True Christian conversion is to be totally transformed. We see that throughout the scripture, where again, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What Paul tells us in the book of Romans, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conversion is that process of being converted. And whenever you take the opportunity to read through the New Testament in particular, and in particular the, the Gospels and the book of Acts, you find a multitude of conversion experiences for individuals as, as well as whole families. In the Gospels, we see individuals going uh, and, and, and giving up everything and following Jesus. They were converted now to follow Jesus. We see some who are healed of diseases and freed from demons, turning their lives over to Jesus, declaring him as their Lord and Savior. Now, just being healed or delivered from a demon doesn't mean that they're converted. We can look at, the, again, the, the story of the 10 lepers. All 10 were healed, but only one was converted. Only one came back to follow Jesus. We read of tax collectors, those that are hated, they're despised by the communities in the Old Testament and the New Testament and now. But uh, we read of uh, prostitutes and adulteresses separated by shame. They're, they're, they're abhorred by those that thought themselves more righteous. We see a man so consumed by demons and demonic power that nobody could him. Nobody could restrain him at all. He even hated his own life so much that he was continually doing harm to himself. 
And yet the love of Jesus Christ delivered them all, setting them free, free from sin and from the judgments of the past. They became converted. There was a conversion experience. And we read about those things in the word of God. We see that they're free from their own destructive life choices in order that they could follow the Savior more closely. We see widows that are consumed with grief and heartbreak find hope and joy in the Savior. We see those that are both spiritually as well well as physically dead, coming back to life and gaining new life and eternal life with Jesus. Over and over again, we see those who were rejected many times by religion, many times scorned by society, and yet they experience the love of the Savior. They're come to know the forgiveness and the acceptance of the beloved. That is the power of Christ in you, church. That's the hope of the gospel. There's not a man or a woman outside the reach of God's forgiveness. There's not a man low enough nor one high enough, but that the love of Christ can still reach them. There's not a sin that's so appalling, there's not a soul so dark, but that the blood of Jesus Christ can and will wash them white as snow. That's the promise of the Lord. That's the promise. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet declares in the very first chapter, he says, as the Lord is speaking, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God knew that we needed a Savior. And that's why he sent Christ for us. And the conversions that we see throughout the Bible attest to the reality and the fact that our God is a God of reconciliation. Though we are separated from him through our sin, he desires that we be reconciled to him. He is a God of reconciliation. And he's the one who does the work to make possible and to make available to us that very means of reconciliation. And that was through the very blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. One of the other things we see as we read through the Bible are multitudes of characters who are outside the will and the plan of God, uh, outside of his, his purposes, and they're going through life, and they feel that they have their life all together. We see individuals who by their very actions, they show themselves to be enemies of God, literally fighting against the very one who created them, the very one who made a way for their salvation, and there is none so well known as the man we're going to look at this morning, a fellow by the name of Saul of Tarsus. I invite you, if you would, to take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 9, as we've been going through the book of Acts now for a while. We are up to chapter 9. You need to understand this as we get into here. Saul was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. The problem is he didn't think he was a bad guy. He thought he was doing the right thing. And although he thought himself actually to be righteous, 
although he thought himself to be doing the very will of God, we know that neither of those things is true. He was neither righteous nor was he doing the will of God. As a matter of fact, the testimony of his own life a little bit later as he's sharing about his life tells us that he eventually realized that earlier in life, he was actually on that fast track to the judgment of God in his life. And all the while, he thought he was pleasing God. We see that today in our world, don't we? We see the jihadists that think, man, we're, we're, we're serving Allah, and, and, and he is favored with it. We're serving God. And yet, they're not. They're going totally against him. My friend, when Paul understood that he was getting ready to be in front of the judgment of God. It was, he understood that was a dangerous place to be, and we're going to look at that this morning. Saul of Tarsus, he first enters into the biblical account in Acts chapter 7, at the very end of chapter 7. So if you're in Acts 9, go back to your left a couple of pages to the very end of Acts chapter 7, verse 57 uh, in particular. It says, then they, the council, they, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him. Speaking of Stephen, remember as Stephen stood before the council. We looked at that a few weeks ago. They, they ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We go on into Acts chapter 8, verse 1. We read that now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. He terrorized the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. There's no getting around it. Saul of Tarsus was a terrorist. He was an evil man. He had evil intent, but yet all the time in his own mind, he thought he was righteous and he thought he was doing the will of God. He cared nothing for the welfare of the ones that were called Christian. And as a matter of fact, he sought every possible way to do them harm through every avenue that was open to him. Now we come to Acts chapter 9. Let's look at that together. Acts chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing out threats and what does it say, church? Murder. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. For Saul, it wasn't enough to harass the believers there in Jerusalem. He wanted to go wherever he could. He wanted to find them wherever they were hiding to make trouble for them, to arrest them, and for some, even to murder them. Those that had experienced already that miracle of conversion, the forgiveness of their sin, and then those that were following Jesus. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. 
and he was doing everything he possibly could to wipe the name of Christ right off the face of the earth and to destroy everyone who dared declare that they were followers of Jesus. Yes, Saul was a bad dude. A very religious dude, but a bad dude. Saul's hatred was so great. He went to the high priest there in Jerusalem and he obtained letters of introduction to the synagogues that were up in Damascus. But he also received from him uh, what, what we would consider arrest warrants uh, in order that once he got up there and he went into the synagogues and he looked around, he could detain and he could determine either by these individual actions of people or through testimonies of other people who there in the synagogues there at Damascus were actually Christians. Remember at that time, though the persecution started in Jerusalem, it hadn't reached Damascus yet. Christians were still involved in even the synagogues. They were still looked at as a sect of Judaism. Paul understood differently, and he went to remove all that might be in the synagogues there in Damascus. And as he did, he would go into those synagogues, and he would look around at the people, I believe, and he would see, oh, I hear their words, I hear their testimony, they must be Christians. Or he would ask others, do you know of any Christians within this synagogue? Oh, well, yes, so-and-so over here, so-and-so over here. They follow the rabbi Jesus. And from that, he would determine that they were the ones that he would arrest and take them bound down to Jerusalem. And that always brings to thought that idea, and it's an old one. But if you were arrested for being a Christian, would they find enough evidence? Would they hear the testimony of your neighbors, your coworkers, your family that says, oh yeah, they're a Christian, they're a believer for sure. Or are you one of those Christians that says, well, I kind of fly under the radar. I don't want to make, make big waves. So really, most of the people I know, they, they, they don't know that I'm a Christian. I kind of keep it you know, under, under, undercover. I'm an undercover agent for the Lord Jesus. You know, the Lord Jesus doesn't have any undercover agents. We've got to be bold. We've got to be right out there. And yes, that makes us targets for those that hate Christ. When we look at this, Luke tells us that Saul was looking for any who were of the way. Now that's a peculiar word. Uh, It's a rare word. It's used, yeah, definitely to designate uh, Christians, those who were of the way, being those that followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ himself had declared that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He was also known as the way of righteousness. But in referring to those who followed him as the way, you need to understand that phrase, that, that term is only used in the book of Acts. And Luke only uses that term there, here in Acts when it is somehow connected to the apostle Paul, or rather before he was converted and he was Saul of Tarsus, or even after he was converted and he ministered to the churches. Luke uses that phrase a couple of times in the book of Acts, but in every time it is connected somehow to the apostle Paul. So in my wondering mind, I look at that and I, I wonder, did, did Paul actually coined that phrase. And, you know, it now, now became popular and then the circle that Paul ran with. We don't know, whatever the case. We find, though, that before his conversion, here he is, Saul of Tarsus, 
This one who declares himself as being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, blameless in the law of Israel, he's on the road to arrest any believers he might find in Damascus, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, depending upon the route you take, Jerusalem is about 150 miles or so, or Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem. If you are walking that route, whatever route that you took, and there was a couple of them available, it would still take about two weeks to get there, give or take a day or so. Now that's a long time to be on the road and allowing your hatred for a people to continue to grow and to simmer. And as Paul got closer to Damascus, I believe that his hatred for the people even grew to a, to a higher range, a higher level. And he was ready to go in and literally to terrorize the Christians there in Damascus. Ah, but God, but God had a different idea. Look with me if you would there in verse three. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting and it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, real quick, that, that last uh, little phrase there, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Some of your versions may have that written a, a different way. Some of you may not have it in your particular version. Don't worry about it. We're going to look at it later. It, it's not a major issue. But here, as Paul travels, suddenly a light shines around him from heaven. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice, and it's the very voice of Jesus himself. And then in a very personal way, I believe that the Lord Jesus addressed Saul as only Jesus could. Saul, Saul. I don't think he was yelling at him. I think it's more like a parent would come to an erring child that just continues to do the wrong thing, even to his own hurt. And you would come up and you'd say, oh, Vic, Vic. <laughs> I find it interesting. We see the same kind of love, the same kind of tone, the same kind of style uh, as the Lord addressed, remember, Simon Peter on the night that he was betrayed. And Simon says, ah, I'm not going to deny you, Lord. I'll be the one that stands for you. You can count on me, Lord. And then Jesus comes, oh, Simon, Simon. <laughs> you know, the devil wants you and he's going to sift you like wheat. No, I don't think the Lord was yelling at Saul. I don't think he was yelling at Simon. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we need to understand, unless we miss the whole connection here, is that in the, in the, in the Hebrewism, is, is that whenever they would say the name twice like that, it, it, was, it was a way of expressing intimacy and, and care for them. Now, uh, it's totally different when you're yelling at someone. Most of you know, you know, uh, when my dad yelled at me, he didn't call my name twice. He just called all my names, you know. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, everyone that he gave me and that God gave me and a few more. But uh, <laughs> he got my attention that way. But in, in the Hebrew idiom, uh, to say the name just twice it's a sign of intimacy. We see it that just before Abraham plunges the knife into Isaac, we hear God speaking to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Maybe a little bit more intensity at that point, but it's still that 
cause of concern. We, we see it as, as God was encouraging Jacob, now an old man. Joseph already in Egypt, the, the situation of the famine taken care of as the brothers have been up there. Now God is telling Jacob to go up and join with Joseph and the rest of the family. And at night he gives a vision and says, Jacob, Jacob. Remember at the burning bush as Moses went up to see what that light was. And from that bush, the words came out, Moses. Moses. Again, that sign of intimacy, that desire. Open our hearts, changes from within by the open word. Thank you for joining us today on The Open Word. Acts is such an interesting book about the early church and how people engaged with their newfound faith and then spread that good news to their region and the entire world. If you're new to the Bible and are unsure what this newfound faith is, you can learn more about a man named Jesus who came to save you. He came as the Son of God to save you from your sins. These early disciples in the book of Acts were elated to share with everyone what Jesus had done for each of them. They wanted others to know that kind of love too. If you want to understand this more fully, we'd like you to know that here at The Open Word, we're here for you and we're praying for you. If you have some questions, please give us a call at 520-836-9676. We'd also like to encourage you to find a church and begin attending regularly. If you live in Casa Grande, we'd love for you to come visit us. The Open Word is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Casa Grande, and we meet every Saturday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. You're welcome to join us for a time of worship and Bible study and a time to get to know other believers and find support. Find out more when you call us. Again, that number is 520-836-9676. You can also find out more about The Open Word and listen to additional messages by visiting theopenword.com. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to The Open Word.